This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour open-line talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. To express your viewpoint, please call 804-754-1988. That's 804-754-1988. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. This morning, the number of pilgrims to the Temple Mount crossed the threshold of 44,000 Jewish worshipers in a single year. What is more remarkable is that there are just over 30 days remaining until Rosh Hashanah, marking the end of the current Jewish year and the beginning of the next. The next, or the Temple Mount administration, expressed great satisfaction in the dramatic increase and the very significant jump compared to any previous numbers of Temple Mount visits by Jews. The previous record was 29,119 held in the year 2020, before the coronavirus epidemic. The Temple Mount administration says that positive changes are taking place on the Temple Mount, along with the increasing numbers of Jews going there. It's a slow process of relaxation of strict behavior restrictions on Jews on the Mount, he said. At one time, whispering was even forbidden as it was seen as a sign of Jewish prayer. The jump in the number of pilgrims is expected to increase even before the end of the Hebrew year, 30 days from now. You say, well, what in the world does that have to do with the price of wheat in Red China or any other issue that uh, we seem to be looking at these days of great importance? What does it have to do with Ukraine? What does it have to do with Russia? What does it have to do with China? What does it have to do with inflation? What does it have to do with the border crossings? What does it have to do with anything? Well, friends, it has to do with everything. That is the problem. It has to do with everything. A new record of pilgrims to the Temple Mount. Now, let's put that in biblical context. In the book of Malachi, chapter 3, we read these words, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears, for he's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap, and he shall purify. Now, these are powerful words, but what do they mean? In what context are they to be understood? You see, right now, there is not only a growing messianic expectation, but there is also a growing temple expectation. In what regard? Well, there is no temple. It's in that regard. There is no temple. Now, some Christian pastors are saying, well, we, the, the, the idea of a, of a temple there on the Temple Mount is irrelevant. God doesn't uh, live in temples made with hands. Of course, he never did. And uh, therefore, it's irrelevant because actually 
the church is being built up of living stones, and we are the temple of God. Well, it is true. You are the walking temple of God. The Spirit of God lives and dwells in you, and you should live according to that. If you don't, then in in reality, your life is desecrating the temple. On the other hand, there has to be some reality to the words of the prophet Malachi when he says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he's just going to prepare the way before me. Now, that happened with John the Baptist. We know that. Jesus attested to the fact that John the Baptist was, uh, in a figure, the Elijah that was to come prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40. On the other hand, this passage says... that the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. This is implying that there is going to be another messenger, another messenger like John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Lord, and then, with all of the messianic expectation, with all of the hope and expectations of a rebuilt temple, He's going to suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Who is this messenger of the covenant? This messenger of the covenant is the Messiah, the Mashiach, the Holy One of Israel, the Anointed One, the expected Redeemer. But who may abide Or who is going to be able to abide the day of his coming? And who shall be able to stand when he appears? That, my friends, is a challenging rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question because it demands an answer. Who is going to be able to stand? Will you be able to stand? Will I be able to stand? Who is going to be able to stand when he appears? Is this for Jew only? Is it for Gentile Christians only? Who is it for? Who is going to be able to stand when he appears? Perhaps now, with just a few of these questions laid on the table, you can begin to understand why the subtitle of my new book is Unveiling the Mystery of the Ages. Unveiling the Mystery of the Ages. The book, Messiah. It's just come out. It's just come out. <clears throat> and it's available only on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org. It's not available on other sources yet because the official release date is not until August 25th. But it is available now, immediately. And the initial people who uh, purchase this book in advance already have their copies. But you don't have your copy yet. But you need to have it because it's going to unveil the mystery of the ages in ways that perhaps you never, ever contemplated. $22, we'll put it in your hands. It's on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org, you can give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's one 800 
Save USA or write to us at Save America Ministries. P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. Now, this declaration in Malachi chapter 3 is one of the most potent, uh, challenging declarations, prophetic declarations of Scripture. In fact, what it tells us, among other things, is Jesus, Yeshua, whoever the Messiah is, is going to suddenly come to his temple. How is he going to come to a temple that doesn't exist? That's the question we must look at next. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. You're listening to the viewpoint. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chrismar, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. is this anyway who is this messenger of the covenant who we purport to delight in that is going to come and suddenly visit his temple notice it's not your temple it's not the sanhedrin's temple it's not abraham's temple it's his temple but it doesn't exist yet it's not there There was a temple there. In fact, there was a tabernacle. And the tabernacle was replaced in the days of Solomon by a physical, stayed, in-place temple, the glory of the Solomonic temple. Then with the destruction of of Babylon because God's people refused to repent, refused to humble themselves, refused to uh, coordinate with his word, his will, and his ways, God, in his mercy and justice, brought Babylon through Nebuchadnezzar upon Israel, and particularly Judah, destroying the temple. It was a horrific thing. Horrific because the temple is the identity element, the key identity element for all Jewish people. It is integrally connected with Eretz Israel, which is the land of Israel. When the people, no matter where they were in Israel, were going to go to the temple, it says that they went up to Jerusalem. No matter where they were going from, they were going up. Now, it's not like Jerusalem and the Temple Mount were all that high. But from the perspective of the exalted spiritual nature of Jerusalem, and even the more so, the Temple Mount, everything was going up. 
to Jerusalem and to the Temple Mount. When that was destroyed, in the Babylonian attack, the second Babylonian attack, there was nothing left. Israel no longer had an identity. And so they spent 70 years in Babylon until the time of judgment, compassionate judgment, by the way, had been executed. Then a fellow by the name of Cyrus, who took over from uh, King Nebuchadnezzar as the Persians took dominion over the Babylonians, Cyrus then became like a type of Christ and in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah gave blessing to the Jewish people to rebuild the temple. And so the temple was rebuilt. It wasn't quite like the original one, the original glory of the Solomonic temple, but indeed, uh, this was a very, very big deal. A very big deal. And so there was a temple. Then, in the days of Jesus, Yeshua, and immediately shortly before that, Herod, Herod the Great, built or added on to the Temple Mount. And it became this massive, massive platform. It extended way beyond the original temple and its position. And so the temple was there. Herod actually had expanded the temple dramatically because he was a great builder. And at that time, Yeshua, Jesus, on the day leading up to the Passover, descended from the Mount of Olives, crossed the Kidron Valley, and headed up to the temple. When he got there, he turned over the tables of the money changers, saying, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Notice, he claimed it was his house. It wasn't the Jewish people's house. It wasn't the Sanhedrin's house, the 71 elders of Israel. It wasn't Herod's house. It was his house. Now, at that time, he didn't claim to be Messiah. In fact, he claimed to be the Son of Man. Jesus did went out of his way not to claim to be Messiah. Because that would have stirred up a hornet's nest, and it would have gone against his desire that the people would recognize him uh, by who he was, what he did, the attitude of his heart, the message that he brought, and he would not have to proclaim himself Messiah. It was only at the time of the provocation when the Jewish elders brought Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the crusty Roman government, and accused him of being the king of the Jews, the Messiah. 
Then they claimed we have no king but Caesar. They played the correctly card before Pilate and said we have no king but Caesar. At that time, Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? Now remember, Jesus was the one who had walked up from the Mount of Olives, across the Cordon Valley, up to the Temple Mount, and the first thing he did on his revealing, the unveiling of who he was in the last week of his existence was to declare the temple to be his. Now, this is fascinating. We need to understand that. The Jewish people need to understand that. But they don't. They can't. Because there's a veil that is over their eyes, preventing them from being able to understand that. What is that veil? Because they're expecting not a deity as Messiah, but one like Moses, a mere man. Since that is your viewpoint, that is your expectation, and it corrals all of the rest of your thinking, you now are prevented from even the possibility that Jesus, or Yeshua, was the Messiah. Yet he claimed it to be his temple. Now, <coughs> excuse me, that being the case, we must understand that there is something very, very significant even about this announcement today that the number of pilgrims to the Temple Mount has crossed a threshold way beyond anything ever experienced up till now since the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. by the Roman governor or uh, general Titus. There has been no temple. Therefore, because there has been no temple, there has been no ability to conduct the temple sacrifices. The temple sacrifices were those that would allow the people to have atonement for their sin. Because there was no temple, under the Torah, the first five books of Moses, they were unable to make those sacrifices because it demanded those sacrifices demanded the existence of the temple or the tabernacle. So the Jewish people were in a bind. They became in a terrible bind. Now what do we do? We have no ability to deal with our sin. And so they came up, a couple of rabbis came up with an idea. Well, uh, we have a better idea. Now this kind of went back to uh, Babylon, but then it expanded in its implication and application after 70 A.D., there had to be something that the Jewish people could look to for redemption. 
and it was good works. Good works. That's even better than the sacrifices and Messiah, they said. Good works. And so the entire movement, even messianic movement, of the Jewish people for the past 2,000 years has actually increasingly focused not so much on an individual, but on a movement, the messianic movement, in order to bring forth what is called tikkun olam, or the redemption of the world. In other words, good works. Everything's going to be wonderful, everything's going to be cool, and uh, everything's going to change, and there'll be war no more, we'll beat our uh, swords into plowshares, and everything will be wonderful. That's the idea. But we have this identity in Malachi chapter 3. The Lord himself will suddenly come to his temple. Now, is that what happened there uh, shortly before his crucifixion? As he made his grand entrance on the donkey? Is that what this is talking about? I don't think so. Because it says, who may abide the day of his coming? And who's going to be able to stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire like fuller soap, and he shall purify. In other words, this is now referring not to those days, but to these days. Who's going to be able to stand when he appears? And when he appears, he's going to suddenly come again to his temple. Now, how is he going to do that if there isn't one? Many people will say, I've heard pastors say, there's no way there could be a temple there on the Temple Mount. It would start World War III. Well, then there's no way God's word could be fulfilled. You see, we have this funny way, even as Christians, this very unbelieving way of looking at what the Bible says. We interpret it based upon what we think, not what God says. That's one of the biggest problems that we have as human beings and as Christians. It's also one of the biggest problems that the Jewish people have. Looking at the Bible, not based upon what God has said, but upon what they think about what God has said. So, one of the big problems that we have now, for everyone, is that traditions have become the shroud that continues to envelop the very idea of a Messiah and who he is. So I have a chapter in my book, toward the end of the book, Messiah, Unveiling the Mystery of the Ages, called Who Is This? The reality is that the Messiah's identity demands reconciling two things, truth and tradition. Truth and tradition have to become, shall we say, congruent in order for tradition to be true and for truth to be to verify tradition. So for to become congruent is going to require that tradition and truth be indistinguishable from each other. For truth to be truth demands that tradition be wrapped completely 
without any observable difference by the truth that has to support it. And that is the greatest, perhaps the greatest challenge to both Jew and Gentile in unveiling the mystery of the ages. Because, you see, we humans inevitably create and embrace traditions that seem to always eventually supersede the truth upon which we claim our traditions to rest. Which leads us to the Torah and the Tanakh, and indeed truth. So we're going to take a few minutes and take a look at the Torah, at the Tanakh, as we begin this pursuit of asking this question, who is this? If the Lord is going to suddenly come to his temple, who is he? How will we know it's him? Don't answer too quickly. Be back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, on the front page are two great videos. First, an interview and discussion of Chuck's book, Out of Egypt. Also, a great TV interview with Chuck regarding his book, Seduction of the Saints. Much more videos, a For Pastors Only section, and also you can view Chuck's weekly teachings. All at his website, saveus.org. That's saveus.org. Also on Chuck's website, listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast. Listen to the archives. Maybe you missed a program. Check it out at saveus.org. Also, there are some great resources, hospitality information, also information about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, newsletters, articles, prophecy, prayer and revival information, all at saveus.org. Torah is unadulterated and unquestioned truth for biblical Judaism. But interestingly, conservative and, shall we say, more orthodox Christians also believe that not only is the Torah God's truth, but likewise the entire Tanakh, the law and the prophets, collectively referred to by we Christians as the Old Testament or Old Covenant. So there's a seemingly separating problem or hurdle for the Jew with the Christian and it's the introduction of the word old. For the true Christian, Yeshua is the fulfillment of the promises and prophecies of the old covenant, therefore ushering in a new covenant, by the way, which Jeremiah uh, talked about, to complete that which prophesied in ages past. For that reason, Christians believe Yeshua was and is the Messiah or anointed one that had been anticipated by Israel since the days of Moses 3,500 years ago. So what then becomes a seeming impenetrable barrier between Orthodox Jew and so-called Orthodox Christian? Is the barrier one of truth or tradition or both? And if this barrier or hurdle or impasse isn't resolved by embracing of actual truth, then rather than by reluctant compromise of tradition, the mystery of the ages will remain shrouded in mystery even as our world collapses before our eyes, which is doing, right? 
And so for many, the promise of redemption is going to remain an illusion facilitated by delusion. And interestingly, the evolution of the fundamentals of Judaism and Christianity has served to divide further rather than unite. In fact, Judaism and the Christian church have followed the same degenerating, compromising pattern just on parallel tracks over the past 150 years. It's pretty amazing when you follow it. And in my book, Messiah, Unveiling the Mystery of the Ages, I actually quote leading Jewish rabbis. For instance, take a look at this. What is called conservative Judaism today is actually reform Judaism. It no longer has any anchor to the Torah or to tradition. It has almost no followers in the USA. Reform Judaism today is like Unitarian Christianity without a Messiah. The reform movement began in the 1800s in Germany. It paralleled Protestant liberalism. They fantasized that if they reformed Judaism to be like the surrounding liberal Protestantism, then the German non-Jews would come to accept Jews in their society. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Isn't that like the church growth movement, the seeker-sensitive movement, the emerging church movement, all of that that's happened in the church since 1970s? Among the reform movement's key reforms is founders abandoned all belief in the coming of Mashiach or Messiah and revival of the dead. So, out of that arose the Jewish conservative movement. The early version was actually not that different from what we now call modern Orthodox Judaism. Yet, from the 1950s, the conservative movement migrated toward Reform Judaism on a descending cycle of increasingly extreme liberalizations that ultimately have resulted in it becoming the new reform, while today's Reform Judaism has descended into Unitarianism without a Messiah. So the conservative movement in the Jewish community became indistinguishable from the radical extremes of the Reform movement, yet in a word, True Judaism is absolutely incompatible with the abandonment of the Torah. Now, those are not my words. Those are coming from the observation of Rabbi Prof. Dove Fisher. We're looking at something, friends. You may not realize it, but there is a veil. It's not just what the Apostle Paul wrote about, that there's a veil that's over the eyes of the Jewish people. There's a veil that's over the eyes of Christian people. And the veil is related to our elevating of tradition over truth. (coughs) When we do that, we inadvertently create a situation that is, shall we say, impassable. We create a situation where we cannot resolve truth because tradition becomes our truth, or at least a major part of our truth. Now, the prophet Joel made this interesting statement. 
Joel chapter 3, verse 14, he said, The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Really? If the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision, what is the day of the Lord, and who is going to have to make this decision? Is this just for Jewish people? Is this for Gentile people? Is it for Jew and Gentile? The valley of decision and the day of the Lord. Well, what is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is the final expression of Yeshua, Messiah, whoever he is, his coming to reveal himself to judge the world in righteousness. That comes from the Old Testament. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people with his truth. He's not going to judge the people according to tradition. Hmm. That may change a lot of Gentile Christians' viewpoints. Maybe their pastors as well. We're going to take a look here at uh, a piece that was published through Israel National News titled Moshiach, Man or Movement. It was written by Yeshai Amahai. It's fascinating. And we're going to see how it reveals the confusion and it is related to the temple. It's related to the temple for both Jew and Gentile. And we're going to see how this question, who is this, becomes a serious, serious question for you, for me, for our times, for every pastor, every uh, rabbi, uh, every person on the planet. We are going to have to answer this question. Who is this? But how will we answer the question? As a lawyer, you see, I'm based upon, I answer questions based upon evidence. Evidence that demands a verdict, so to speak. Well, we have a whole chapter dealing with that kind of outlook, viewpoint, concerning uh, this matter of piercing the corporate veil, piercing the veil. How are we going to do that? What evidence are we supposed to be looking at? Very few people even consider that. And it's because they don't consider it that they are going to be prepared to accept a counterfeit. And this is the reason why my book, Messiah, had to be preceded by the book Antichrist, How to Identify the Coming Imposter. Because the imposter and his counterfeit spirit and identity is going to be so profoundly deceptive that the majority of people on the planet, Jew and Gentile, will embrace him. They will not be prepared to answer the question concerning Messiah himself, Who is this? They will be restrained from that by tradition, by distorted applications of truth, by misapplication of the scriptures, 
and just because they feel like it. They don't like Messiah. They prefer his counterfeit. So why is it then that Yeshua, Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, I came to you in my Father's name, and you rejected me. But there is one coming in his own name, and him you will receive. Oh, so if he's coming in his own name, like, well, I, I'm Moses, or uh, I'm Elijah, or I'm this, I'm that, then they're going to receive him. But if he comes like Yeshua, full of grace and truth, and doesn't come bragging about his messiahship, and doesn't come bragging about how he's the son of God, but rather the son of man, and reveals who he really is by the truth of his life, as opposed to the false representations that come from braggadocia, religious braggadocia, they'll reject him. Isn't that how it is today, even in our churches? Exactly. That's exactly how it is. There's so much religious braggadocia. Elevating human beings over God. It's idolatrous. So who is this then? Judaistic viewpoints regarding Messiah are rooted not only in the Torah, that is the first five books of Moses, but in progressively reformed traditions derived in and from rabbinical interpretive works such as the Talmud and Mishnah. You talk about tradition. This is tradition heaped upon tradition upon tradition upon tradition. And this is what Jesus was talking about. He said, you by your traditions do make the word of God of none effect. Hmm. What kind of traditions do we have, even as Gentiles, that make the word of God of none effect? Interesting. Are we willing to ask that question? This is you. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Believe it or not, you are becoming the messianic jury. In fact, every single individual on this planet is a member of the messianic jury. (coughs) Every single individual will decide, who is this? Who is this person? 
Now, before Messiah is made manifest or comes, he will be preceded by a counterfeit. That counterfeit is referred to as the Antichrist. He is also a counterfeit. He will appear to most people as wonderful, as somebody that they desire, as somebody who fulfills their fleshly expectations and hopes and dreams. The problem is that their expectations, hopes, and dreams are not biblically based. They're based upon the flesh. And everything of the flesh brings corruption. It corrupts the truth. It corrupts even the Bible. And both Jew and Gentile are caught in this juggernaut of elevating tradition over truth, of rationalizing truth and turning it into something that we want it to be rather than what it is. So, we fit the bill, just as Jesus said, you by your traditions to make the word of God of none effect. Now, I promised you that we would take a look at this fascinating uh, article published by Yeshai Amahai, titled Moshiach, that is Messiah, Man or Movement. And it came in the uh, Israel National News. <coughs> You'll be able to find it in my book, Messiah, Unveiling the Mystery of the Ages, which again is available to you for your gift of $22 to Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. You can call us at 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA, or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 2. 3255, writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. By the way, let me just make this as an aside. Just in the last day, I have received contacts from two different individuals listening to this program in Boston and uh, somewhere else up there in the Northeast. They had never listened to this program before. They had been listening for about one month. Would you care to know what their response has been? They were overwhelmingly grateful. They said, we have never, ever heard anything presented so clearly. Simply, clearly. And we've made it a regular part of our daily experience, listening to Viewpoint. Now, if you can't listen on terrestrial radio, you can listen via our <clears throat> website, saveus.org, uh, podcast. You'll, you'll find that. Uh, probably two-thirds of all our listeners now are listening via podcast. And that means you can listen to it any time of the day or night anywhere in the world. When you're driving, when you're walking, <clears throat> whatever you're doing, it's quite amazing. So redeem the time that way. You see, you can make a huge difference by telling your friends. 
This is how we get the message out. Yeshai Amahai, Mashiach man or movement. He states that the Rambam, that is the revered Rabbi Maimonides, clarifies what is to be expected of the Messiah. He says, in the future, the Messianic king will arise and renew the Davidic dynasty. He will build the temple and gather the dispersed of Israel. Such king, he writes, will not be required to work miracles and wonders or to resurrect the dead. Rather, declared the Rambam, if a king will arise from the house of David who diligently contemplates the Torah and observes its commandments and rectify the breaches in its observance and fight the wars of God, we may with assurance consider him Messiah. If he succeeds in those things and builds the temple in its place and gathers the dispersed of Israel, he is definitely the Messiah. Now you can understand why we began the program with the report of the largest number of Jewish people ever since 70 A.D. ascending the Temple Mount. Something is happening. There's something changing. There is a spirit that is changing to prepare the way of the Lord for the coming of the true Messiah. But what if the Ramban is wrong? What if the Messiah doesn't build the temple? What if he comes to the temple that's been built? What if it's not the Messiah that builds the temple, but it's his counterfeit that facilitates the building of the temple? The Antichrist. Can you see then how the entire Jewish world will be deceived? And quite frankly, many Gentiles as well. As they look, Gentile Christians, as they look at this, they're going to say, this is, this is amazing. He must, be, he must be Messiah. Now, on the other hand, uh, Mr. Amahai rightly observes that the exiles or dispersion of Israel are already being regathered without the appearance of the Messiah. He, he goes on to say that Israel has been fighting wars and winning them without the Messiah. So we seem to be fulfilling the prophecies without a Davidic king. So the only thing missing, he says, listen carefully, the only thing missing is to reinforce the Torah and rabbinically devised halakhic laws and to rebuild the temple. That's the deal. That is the big kahuna, so to speak. That is the ultimate expression of the hope of Israel. <coughs> Tikvat Israel, the hope of Israel. The conclusion, then, he says, is that the Messiah is not merely a man, but a movement. Theoretically, a Davidic king could claim to have been chosen by God based upon his accomplishments. So, all of this conceptualization of identifying the Messiah, based upon the best rabbinic viewpoints, leads us to this conclusion. Listen carefully. 
If a man claims to the satisfaction of trusted rabbis to be the descendant of King David, if such a man assists in the regathering of Jewish exiles, if such a man facilitates the rebuilding of the temple, ostensibly to make possible the restoration of the sacrificial system required by the Torah, then Israel and the Jewish people should recognize that man as the long-desired Messiah. That's, those are the givens. But the question has to be asked, can any or all of these claim prerequisites be seemingly confirmed, yet with undisclosed devious or demonic intent? So actually to ultimately destroy rather than restore. So Rabbi Beryl Wine noted again in Israel National News under the title, Heaven's Perfect Timing. He said there's a famous statement that reverberates throughout Jewish society over the ages that states, what cannot be solved by wisdom will eventually be solved by the passage of time. Okay, well, don't we all know that? Isn't that what the Bible says when it says, let patience have its perfect work? Isn't that what trusting God is all about? But yet this rabbi is using this as a way to obfuscate or hide from the very things that have been established by their famous leaders like Maimonides as to how to identify Messiah. So the rabbi Wein, or Wein says the timing of heaven and God's guidance in human affairs is always mysterious, inexplicable, and irrational to us ordinary mortals. But in respect, one sees the perfect involved and the exquisite nature of the timing that governs human events. Friends, that's exactly why we're on the air to prepare the way of the Lord for history's final hour, so that it is not mysterious. So what would the consequences be if under the revelation of rabbis in Israel, the leading rabbis, uh, they were to form a false opinion regarding who is this or who is this man, who, who is Messiah. Well, if you take a brief review of rabbinic history, that revered Sanhedrin, composed of 71 noted rabbis, openly and violently rejected a man who fulfilled all of the stated rabbinic requirements for Messiah, except for one, the rebuilding of the temple which then actually existed, which he said was his house. So, you might take a brief summary. In our pursuit of truth, unveiling the persistent mystery of the ages, he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, as prophesied by Micah. He was of the Davidic line, both through his mother and through his surrogate father. He was a Jew. He was a man like Moses. His ministry was to the Jewish nation. 
He revered the Torah and Tanakh, applying them righteously rather than exclusively by rabbinic tradition. So why then did Israel's trusted spiritual leaders not recognize him as the long-awaited Mashiach? Why did they only test him according to their traditional expectations rather than trust him as conforming to both the law and the prophets? That's a big question. So what they did, they simply superimposed their own traditional expectations of a kind of like a Maccabean-type king warrior to deliver them from Roman domination and then further feared the loss of their own power, perks, and position among the people if they embrace Yeshua as Messiah. So, can you see then how culture and tradition present perhaps our most difficult challenge when seeking to ascertain actual truth. That challenge becomes insurmountable if your mind, if my mind and heart are not truly desiring truth or have purported reasons for rejecting truth even when dramatically confronted with it. So, in order to assist in unveiling the, this persistent mystery of the ages, perhaps the best non-confrontive way is to ask probing questions that by themselves provoke a righteous response. So, I ask the question, who is this? Who is this? Was Yeshua the way to Messiah? Would Messiah be a man? Would Messiah also be divine or deity? Who is the Son of Man? Who is this king? Can God be born? If God can be born, will he be born? You're the jury. You must and will decide. And the jury is now out. Thanks for joining us here on YouTube. Get a copy of the book, Messiah, Unveiling the Mystery of the Ages. I can almost guarantee you've never read anything like it. It's going to open your eyes and your heart. $22 on the website, saveus.org. Become a partner, friend, send your gifts by faith. Save America ministry. Let's prepare the people together for history. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.